Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to this very strange episode of UConn 360. That's the world's only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable febrile angle. We're coming to you remotely, in exile, so to speak. Four of us are in four different locations because, of course, the Rona. The coronavirus, which has gripped our entire world, has forced the university to move to online delivery of classes for the remainder of the semester. And uh, most employees have been sent home, uh, and that includes us. So we'll be doing this for the duration. This is uh, new for us and new for everyone, so I hope this works out. I hope our lack of audio fidelity, which is something we've made a point of talking about in our <laughs> professional... Extensively. Yeah. Well, you know, circumstances uh, dictate, you know, uh, we had to change things up. So hopefully this doesn't sound too, too bad, and we hope you stick with us. We, we may be doing shorter episodes. We may be talking a lot about coronavirus because that's all that people are talking about. But we'll try to bring you some of our normal fun and frivolity and informative stuff about the University of Connecticut. And who do I mean by we... Well, I'm Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. And joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Maxine Filivong. Hello. Hello. Julie Bartuka. <laughs> Coming to you from quarantine in Wethersfield. All right. And Ken Best, manning the boards. And the Mansfield, Mansfield Center studio is in Ken operation. Is, Ken is backlit right now, and he's just a black blob on my screen. It's beautiful. I could turn the light on, but I'd have to get up and probably knock the sound it's down. It's all good. We don't I want to do imagine that. You. It's like one of those those shows where they black people out. It's great. So we're coming to you from all across the great state of Connecticut. And uh, why don't we just start off by, I guess, checking in. How's everyone doing with our new, our strange new reality? I mean, obviously our lives have changed significantly. What What have you liked? What have you not liked? What have you found impossible to live without? I'm truly thriving in this environment. Um, <laughs> I'm a very much an extrovert and a social person, but since everyone is home, I have no FOMO. I am doing lots of Zoom happy hours and conference calls with colleagues and friends and family. Um, so it's pretty good. I'm hanging out with my dogs and my husband a lot and have a good little work set up all day. So I'm not, not too bad yet. Trying not to let the anxiety get the best of me. All right, that's good. That's positive. I've been doing some online classes, and it's going fine. For my first class, uh, my professor didn't know to wear headphones, so it was just like an echo the entire time, <laughs> and we couldn't hear her for like the hour and a half we had class, or the hour we had class, but that was fine. Today, I also went to a virtual career fair, and I got to interview with some people over Zoom, so that was fun. But other than that, I've been hanging out with my cat and my partner, so it's been <laughs> a fun time quarantine together all right and so uh so online classes are going okay despite some early bumps in the road that's good to hear uh ken what about you how are you how are you doing in our our new quarantined reality well this is kind of a flashback to my existence uh before i came to yukon when i was getting my master's degree and freelancing for the new york times and teaching part-time so uh sitting at my keyboard uh, looking out the window getting outside to take a walk every once in a while and uh, making sure that I get my work done is is not a strange thing for me. It's just a little bit odd not seeing everybody in the office because, as I think most of you know, I tend to get up and walk around the <laughs> building when I need a, to, to to get away from the desk. And there's 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 no desks other than mine right now. Uh, I would describe my uh, quarantine experiences. Have you ever seen the movie The Shining? <laughs> which which part? Uh, the, kind of the whole thing, the whole sweep. 
of The Shining. I'm, I'm Do I the, need to take your typewriter away? I'm, I'm at the point where I'm like walking into the ballroom in my house and having conversations with ghostly bartenders. <laughs> There's a ballroom in I your think house? So. I mean, that could just be the... the uh, it's probably the, just the living room. Yeah. yeah. Could, Tom's could, hallucinations have taken over. But yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, it's it's still early days, and uh, none of us really know how this is going to shake out. So, uh, trying to make the best of it, trying to go for walks every day. Get Me some too. Fresh air and sunshine. You know, normally we do husky headlines. They're all about coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I would urge you to go to today.yukon.edu and and follow along. There's lots of updates. One was just posted uh, this afternoon. Yukon is going to be providing refunds for uh, unused housing and dining plans which is something a lot of universities are doing because obviously our students can't use their meal plans and if they're not living in their residence halls, they're not, um, they're not getting what they paid for. So we're going to be refunding that. And also, uh, more importantly, if you can help out, there's a story on UConn today. Uh, UConn Health, our colleagues who are uh, very much on the front line of this, they are seeking donations of personal protective equipment. Uh, like a lot of doctors and hospitals around the U.S., there's a shortage of that. They are looking for N95 respirator face masks, disposable face masks, face shields and goggles, disinfecting wipes and liquids, and general purpose hand cleaners. And if you don't have any of that, like if you haven't been hoarding face masks, um, there's other ways you can help out too, including making donations or buying um, gift certificates at local restaurants who have been donating food to the uh, doctors and nurses at UConn Health. So there's lots of ways you can help if you want. Head on over to today.uconn.edu to uh, look into that if you're so inclined. It's probably going to get a lot worse there for those folks, so anything you can do is greatly appreciated. We thank them. They're all amazing, all the people on the front lines. So, you know, everyone's talking about the Rona, the coronavirus, the COVID, uh, but, you know, life goes on. We have other things happening at the university. We are still doing the work of uh, teaching and research, albeit remotely in most cases. And, uh, Ken, you've got uh, some life goes on UConn story for us, right? Uh, Yes, you may recall... If you're a faithful listener, which we hope that you are, that last uh, spring, uh, Professor Janet Pritchard, who's a photography professor here at UConn, received that Guggenheim Fellowship to support her current project titled More Than a River, the Connecticut River Watershed, uh, where she is taking photos of the Connecticut River landscape as what she sees as a complex set of interconnected systems where the present bumps up against the past in very telling ways. Her work is part of prestigious permanent collections in uh, venues across the country and actually uh, overseas as well, including the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Yellowstone National Park Museum, which was the subject of a soon-to-be-published book, uh, Yellowstone, an American Love Story, published by George F. Thompson Publishing in association with the American Land Publishing Project. Professor Pritchard started taking photos as a youngster in New Jersey and helped to start a camera club in her school while also spending most of her time outdoors uh, walking through the woods and playing sports. She left college for a little while before uh, heading back to become a professor and a photographer. Uh, She arrived at UConn in 2001. She and I spoke about her work and her approach to photography and specifically also about the new Connecticut River Project. I started photographing before I even remember the little instamatics that were, you know, around the house kind of thing. But I didn't really start what I think of as more of a serious pursuit of photography until I was 13. I went to camp in Wyoming in the Jackson area. One of the counselors had a 35mm SLR, a Pentax Spotmatic. 
very famous camera in the camera world. It's like many people's first camera in those days. And he let me look through it. We were on a rafting trip on the Snake River under the shadow of the Grand Teton. And I just fell in love. So when I got home later that summer, it was the start of eighth grade. And I told my mother about the experience. And she said, well, I just so happened to have a camera that had belonged to your father. My biological father died when I was very young. And she said he loved photography. And she gave it to me. And it was a completely manual rangefinder, a uh, Contax, actually, a Zeiss Contax. It's a beautiful little German-made, very simple uh, camera that you had to know what you were doing to get anything from it, which I didn't. So then I went to the local camera store and chatted with the guys and got a book and started reading and learning and playing and trying. And that year at school, we had a new Spanish teacher who loved photography himself. So a few of us got together with him and started a club. And we commandeered a closet, which became our first darkroom, and took off from there. On your website, you have uh, the four major projects that you have worked on in recent years. They're all landscape. Dwelling expressions of time, like a whisper of time on the land. Yellowstone, an American love story, which is a book that's going to come out uh, in another year and a half or so? Uh, hopefully a little bit less than that, but yes, it's in process. And the current project, which your Guggenheim time is being devoted to, the Connecticut River watershed, more than a, a river. These are all very different projects from the sense of uh, space and, and what you're looking at. Uh, how do you make a decision on what you're going to be focusing on for such a concentrated period of time to tell the story that you think needs to be told? The projects all look different, but I think underneath the sort of the bones of the way I think about making photographs and putting them together as projects is ongoing and evolving some. They're all based in history, history of landscapes, history of places, history of interactions between people and physical terrain, which is why when I introduce myself and and say that I'm a landscape photographer, I borrow a, a very simple direct definition from Barry Lopez, which is that landscape photography is the intersection of nature and culture. When I look at the land, I'm interested in it from how it was formed physically, geologically. I know a little bit about geology, not a lot. I look at how it's been used over time by different groups of people, the economics of it, the the resource issues of it, the personal issues of lives lived there. And the emphasis on those different things changes a little bit in each of the projects, but it's always there. So, for example, dwelling expressions of time, which chronologically is the first project that's on my website because it's it starts early on from when I got here to start teaching at UConn. One of the things that I noticed is that when I was walking through the woods, I expected to find a landscape that was very much like the woods of my childhood in New Jersey. I grew up in the central part of the state, which is the very tail end of the glaciation. And so there's there are similarities. You know, it's hardwood forest, there's evidence of glacial past, and so on. So I was expecting it to be fairly similar. 
What I found when I started walking through the woods was a lot more evidence of, in particular, 19th century and maybe even back to the mid-18th century usage by people. For example, one really obvious thing is small dams creating spaces for water, harvesting water power. And that's what caught my attention. So that's what I was trying to photograph was this experience of mine of walking through the woods and having a collision of time, the past and the present both being present, which is why I used a Faulkner quote in writing about that work, which is about the past not even really being past. The Connecticut uh, River Project that you're currently doing is a departure in a sense, because as you say on your site, uh, you've been taking uh, photos of landscapes for, for three decades, but a river project is not something that you've done previously, uh, at least not on this scale. Definitely not on this scale. My awareness and interest of watersheds is longstanding. I have a very clear recollection of being a child and riding in the car with my father. And we very much bonded over landscapes in various ways, riding by a sign in some woods that identified it as part of a particular watershed. And he told me what a watershed was. And concept that was a conceptual shift for me to think about a landscape in that sense. So I've been aware of them and thinking about them for many years. I've photographed rivers in a small way, but this project is somewhat of a departure. When we moved here in 2001... I had a pretty early experience and a pretty clear sense of the river as dividing the state economically, socially, um, historically. And so I did do a little bit of reading about that. Not too long after we moved here, John McPhee's book, and he's, his writing has influenced me a great deal over the years. I think of him as one of my heroes in many ways. The legendary New Yorker writer yes. who is, I think, still at Princeton. He's been there his whole life. And his writing has, has always fascinated me. I've read many of his books. But right about that same time, not too long afterwards, his book, The Founding Fish, came out, which is all about the shad. And he writes about the Delaware and the Connecticut. And um, I had grown up around the Delaware. Those two landscapes for me in some ways, the landscape of my childhood and the landscape of a different time in my life. And so I was very interested in the river, and it was in the back of my mind for a long time. But I got snagged by the dwelling project, and I worked on that for quite a while. And then I thought I'd do the river, but then I got snagged by the Yellowstone project and going since then. One of the things that I do when I do these bigger projects is I sort of lean on this quote that I found a number of years ago, actually in an essay written by Michael Pollan on the history of gardens, because I spent a long time with gardens, which comes out of my dissertation work from graduate school. It's from an 11th century Japanese garden manual titled Sakuteki. And the quote is, begin by considering the lay of the land and the water. Consider the works of past masters. Recall the places of beauty that you have known and then make into your own that which moves you most. I really think of that as sort of three phases which I emulate in the structures of my bigger projects, which is to begin by considering the lay of the land and the water, which is going out and seeing it and talking to people and looking at things and and reading a little bit, but more it's about being there. I don't want to be a tourist. I'll never be a local, but I don't want to be a tourist. I need to be somewhere in between. I also, in these big projects... Any one of these projects could be a career path. I don't want to do that either. 
and I don't want it to be an encyclopedia. So I have to find points of emphasis so that it can have some depth, but I also want it to have some breadth. So the trick is to find a way to balance those two. It's been said that the Connecticut River is uh, considered the heart of New England, the cradle of New England culture. And in what you've posted to date that I saw, you've got uh, pretty much a travelogue of New England. You've got Frank the Welder in Vermont, the Barrett Fishway in Holyoke, Massachusetts. You're down under the Founders Bridge in in Hartford. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a varied landscape, uh, almost like a tour of the country visually as you come down from the north. And I think that character will stay with it. I don't know – this work also is – my intention is to go to a book. I feel really strongly that when you're dealing with photography in the way that I do, it takes time for people to absorb it. It takes me years to make the work. I hope it at least takes minutes, maybe hours for people to absorb it. And with a book, I think these layers of interest, these layers of usage of the river, changing relationships to the river, all of these things can come out in a much deeper way than they can in an exhibition. So I do exhibits, but I never have a chance to exhibit an entire project. They're too big. The Yellowstone book is over 200 pages. It's uh, 186 photographs. That's a lot. There's also a lot of writing involved to describe a, what's there. there. There, yeah, there's, there's, a, yeah. It just it all takes time, and I'm not fast. You know, it all has to sort of soak in, and my understanding of it has to become more sophisticated through experience and research. Receiving a Guggenheim Fellowship is one of the most significant honors that an artist can receive because it recognizes your work throughout the years and says you are a productive scholar and have a significant record of achievement. That's a big thing to think about, but you've had a little bit more time since we spoke originally. Now that you've thought about it a bit, what do you feel about it? It's great to have the resources, but it's also very satisfying to have the recognition, right? External validation is something that doesn't happen often in the life of an artist in this country. I don't know what it's like in other countries. I hear that some it's a little bit different. You know, what we do is not as tangible as what an engineer does or a chemist maybe who's involved in industrial work. And so it's not as often that we get recognized as contributing to society in a larger way. So I like to think of it as a recognition, at least from a peer group, that I'm doing a good job. I have to say, uh, talking with Janet Pritchard is, is always an interesting thing. She is curious, she's creative, and she's always interesting to talk with. I think this is going to be a really good project once she gets uh, completed with it, and hopefully she'll get another book, as she said. Very cool. So yeah, lots of stuff is still happening at UConn. It's not, it's not just COVID all the time, <laughs> uh, although that kind of dominates our thoughts. Um, and Gotta one get partic- your mind off. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no I was, that's going to be one thing that uh, is going to be a lot of fun on the new podcast going forward, because we're all doing this via Zoom. There's going to be a lot of <laughs> Interruptions. <laughs> Sorry. 
That's all right. Although, although we, we can't can. see each other, sort of. We need to take better uh, visual cues. Except for Ken, who's like in the witness protection program. <laughs> his, his identity shielded from us. So one very unfortunate result of the, the pandemic is that there will be no commencement ceremonies uh, this year. That's a huge bummer. Maxine is a senior. Um, that's, yep. That, that's got to be disappointing. What was your reaction when you heard that? I, I think I knew it was coming. Yeah. All of the other colleges canceled the commencement, so it's not like UConn would be any different. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was pre- I was to prepare myself long before there, we got the news. There are things in the works. There are things in the works to uh, celebrate our graduating seniors, both virtually and hopefully in the fall in person. Yes. So uh, we will be honoring you as you deserve. Thank you. Some things uh, are in the works, but um, interestingly, this was not the first time there have been no commencement ceremonies at UConn. I thought that maybe there were no commencement ceremonies in 1970 with the uh, the wave of protests at universities in May that uh, followed the Kent State shootings, which Ken had brought up, actually, uh, as one of the things that a lot of uh, schools went to pass-fail after that. But no, UConn had commencement in 1970. However, as uh, Maxine did some research and found out, I guess this is this is more Maxine's history corner than Tom's history corner. It's some um, sleuthing, as uh, Tom would say. Some sleuthing in the archives and found out that twice... Uh, in our history, at least twice. There were no commencement uh, exercises in 1911 and 1914. Um, And I have to say, I think, you know, it's one thing to cancel because there's a global pandemic that is a a major threat to public health. Uh, The reasons for the cancellations in 1911 and 1914 just seem like uh, (laughs) students kind of got screwed over. Uh Uh-oh. What happened? Well, I just seem to recall something going on between 19... 11 and 1914. Well, this had nothing to do with uh, with world affairs. This had to do, in both cases, with uh, the university changed the curriculum midway through that added an additional year to the degree program. So in both 1911 and 1914, no one was eligible to graduate. No! <laughs> yes. Uh, Maxine found this in the uh, June 1st, 1911 issue of The Lookout, which is the predecessor of the Daily Campus. On account of the lengthening of the course of study, there will be no graduating class this year, and therefore no commencement day exercises. But in response to a request that an alumni day be arranged for, in the belief that many of the alumni will welcome an opportunity again to spend a day at the college, the alumni officers arrange for Tuesday, June 13th as alumni day. And hereby invite your attendance at that time. So they were telling the uh, seniors who had now instantly become juniors, hey, if you want to show up in June and hang out with some alum, some people who <laughs> did graduate, you're perfectly fine. That's really upsetting for those students. And they had to not only not graduate, but have another year have of school back. that yeah. they didn't expect. Oh. When, what was what were we called at that time? Were we that was Connecticut State? Oh, no, I think that was still Stores Agricultural College. Okay, so we were like getting a little more yeah academically rigorous and more breadth and depth to our programs. It, I'm guessing. In fact, in 1914, Maxine uh, noticed that uh, that was the first year that they required a high school diploma to attend <laughs> UConn. All right, so this is this is pretty legit. Yes, no, I mean it, yeah. they probably did the curriculum changes probably were necessary, but still, <laughs> it, was, it was a good thing. You could kind. Of, I mean, I don't know. I feel like if you. I don't know. If I were those students, I'd still be a little upset. But again, uh, they probably enjoyed it. You know, what else are they doing? It was a very different time. Get to go to stores and, uh, you know, uh, move rocks around, whatever they did back then. (laughs) They did. They did did move rocks around. Yeah, they had a song about it. That was a requirement, as I recall. It was a requirement, yeah, yeah. Along with, like, military drill and chapel. Very different uh, campus environment. In those days. Yes, thankfully. Did you find anything out about their response to these changes uh maxine did, did i didn't i didn't notice anything maxine did you find anything yeah i couldn't find anything even just finding like what actually changed in their archives they didn't really note anything 
I found like the new course of study, but that's like all I was able to find, which was a little strange. I feel like they'd be some editorial if they if it happened now, there'd be like at least one editorial about it. But I feel like they didn't mind all that much. Yeah, the the paper was kind of a you know just a newsletter at that point. What kind of classes were part of the requirements? Do you? Do you remember? Everyone had to take the same classes their first year, and it was things like English and uh, a bunch of different math classes, foreign language, uh, German or French, sort of a, the, the, the liberal arts patina, as they say at MIT. And then things got specialized, depending on what your major was after that. So, like, your major was, I mean, you know, it was, all, it was a primarily an agricultural school back then, so there were, you know, there were classes on things like, uh, one was called, like, the principles of breeding, <laughs> that kind of thing. Breeding animals, I hope. Yes. Yes. Right. Breeding animals. Uh, agricultural yes. school. And there was a there was a home ec uh, track for students. So there were things like uh, they all had to take rhetoric though, which was interesting, and public speaking. Which I, I mean, that would be a good thing mm-hmm. to teach people now. Wow. Sorry, class of nineteen eleven. <laughs> yeah. No. If, if if you're out there and you were in the class of nineteen eleven. <laughs> hey, we we went more than a hundred <laughs> years without having to cancel commencement. That's good. That's not. Yeah. I mean, like. Uh, World War One, World War Two, the Spanish flu, uh, the Vietnam era. We, you know, we held it together until there was a massive global pandemic. Um, have you picked up any uh, useful pandemic tips for the folks out there? Any useful pandemic tips? What? How do you? How do you? Uh, each of you? How do you measure twenty seconds when you're washing your hands? Uh, I've been doing the happy birthday twice thing most of yep. the time. Yeah, yep. that was that was a pretty easy go to. And sometimes I read something a tweet that said um, something about like whose name do you say when you sing happy birthday? And for most people, it was their own. But then I started to sing the um, you look like a monkey and you smell like one too version, <laughs> <laughs> just for my own, just for my own enjoyment. <laughs> I've been doing like the. Uh the steps online so it's like you're supposed to wash in between your hands and wash in back of your hands and like do one hand or one finger individually um and i feel like i could sweep the 20 seconds i'm not quite sure i'm not counting but i feel like as long as i get every nook and cranny of my hand it's it's probably fine Mm -hmm. yeah as far as pandemic tips quarantine tips i was i wanted to say after ken's piece speaking about the arts it's awesome how so many musicians and artists are doing like live streaming performances from their houses and things like that for free. And it, somebody had pointed out that like it just shows how important the arts are to our survival and our happiness. And someone should think about that next time they want to cut funding to the arts. And also exercise. You mentioned going outside. I've been t- my dogs are so happy because we've been taking a lot more walks. But there's like a million free classes on YouTube right now. I did a Zumba class in this room last night. And it was super fun. So there's a lot of stuff to take advantage of because we're all in the same boat. On the subject of the arts, the uh, Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry is doing some online creative things, uh, a puppet workshop and a scene-making workshop uh, are taking place this week. In fact, uh, as we're recording this, the puppet-making workshop is going on, and uh, on Friday there will be another one. They're going to continue it all the way through the semester. So if you go to the uh, Ballard website, bimp.ucon.edu, you can find out more information. That's awesome. If if uh, if a bunch of like cool puppets comes with this pandemic, that won't be the worst thing in the world. Well, uh, the the thing is that they're trying to keep it 
Very simple for people who uh, are stuck in the house and don't have maybe a lot of supplies. It's aimed a lot at families, of course, for uh, occupying the kids, because I know from just speaking to my own family and some of our colleagues, the information going home from the schools is great, but everybody's trying to become a teacher who's not a teacher. So it's kind of interesting how everybody's adapting to this. I've been um, tutoring some kids on the side during the pandemic, and it's really hard. <laughs> I'm doing five, and the other is like three. And they both have, well, the three year old doesn't really have like real assignments, but the five year old has like a uh, full day of assignments. And just getting them to sit down for two seconds, <laughs> it's really difficult. So, props to all the parents trying to do yes. seven jobs at the same time. Also, to our teachers. I think, yes. uh, you know, maybe this should make people realize we should pay teachers more. Mm hmm. Lots of appreciation for a lot of things coming out of this experience. Yeah. I've been watching the thread from one of the departments that I receive uh, emails from all the time. They have a listserv that I'm on so I can see what's going on with the faculty. And there's been a huge volume of cross-conversation with everyone trying to help everyone else get figure out how to do things. Because although everyone's fairly good at doing online things teach some of the things that they have to figure out is not instinctive and so they've been doing workshops and if you look at the daily digest listings there's always something there for the last couple of weeks with the instructional uh, faculty trying to assist their colleagues in making things more interesting and making things easier for them to do because uh, they want to get through the end of the semester yep yeah, seriously. They're probably very busy. One of the few sectors of the economy that won't be flattened like a pancake. Oh. Stay positive, Tom. Right. People, no, you're right. Positive. Our, our people are coming here for a respite, not for not for more of this sadness. No, that's right. Things are going to be okay, everybody. We're all going to pull together. Uh, <laughs> Helping each other out is I'm good. Here at the Overlook Hotel, uh, things are <laughs> things are fine. <laughs> Has the blood started coming out of your elevator yet? Yeah, yeah. I keep seeing these twins in the hallway. I don't know where they are. <laughs> They're not paying rent, that's for sure. Um, that seems like a good place to stop. Don't yeah, you? why don't we why don't we uh, wind this up? If you're out there, you're listening, and you made it this far, if you have any uh, pandemic tips or, or observations from what you've been experiencing, why don't you send them to us uh, at UConn Podcast on Twitter? We'd love to hear it. We'll, uh, we'll talk about them on our next uh, episode in a fortnight. And uh, that's a good way to follow us generally at UConn Podcast. I'm taking a break from Twitter right now, but I'm at TJ Breen if you want to follow me. And UConn Today, keep uh, seriously, there's a lot of interesting stuff, not just that applies to uh, UConn folks, but generally there's articles about you know managing stress. Uh, there's articles about health insurance and coronavirus. There's articles about um, immigration and coronavirus. There's a lot of interesting stuff going up. So today.uconn.edu. Um, Maxine, is there anything you want the good people of listener land to know? This is probably the best time to take a break from Twitter because it's really sad on there. <laughs> um, but you can follow me at Maxine Philibong, Um And I don't have anything else for the people to know because my internship at WPR has ended. Mm. Anyways. But you get to work with us more. That's right. Julie, what about you? I'm at Julie Bartuka. Not a lot going on there. Yeah. Stay positive, everybody. 
Stay positive. Ken, what about you? Well, I'm busy working on things so that uh, Mr. Breen has some postings that are not Corona-related on UConn today. WHUS has been pretty much on on remote control, but uh, they promised that there's going to be a way we can contribute our shows and we can get it on the air. So hopefully that will happen soon and I can go back to doing some music that will be on the WHUS Sound Alternative Channel 91.7. Cool. All right, everybody. Thanks. Stay positive, like Julie said, and uh, look for the light at the end of the tunnel. See you next time. All right, we all ready? (coughs) Yep. I'm good. Oh, God. I don't have Corona. That's not the (laughs) Corona.